Praise God. God is so good. Oh, he is so good. Thank you, Lord. Well, last week we began talking about uh, change in the eternal pattern. And, and we talked a lot about change, changes that come uh, in this world, in our life, at a big level and a personal level. And this week we're going to talk about the sun and the eternal pattern. And the consistent theme here is the eternal pattern. Well, what do I mean by the eternal pattern? Um, Go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I love the book of Hebrews. It is is one of the most um, instrumental books of really understanding who Christ is and and really understanding um, this great salvation that God has given us in Christ. It's also a book that can be greatly misunderstood, I believe. Um, but the Scripture's not written to cause us to misunderstand. The Scripture's written to bring uh, understanding and clarification. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But that can't come if we're not, if we're not allowing the Spirit of God to reveal the Word of God that has been once and for all delivered to us. Amen? And this word speaks of really one thing, or we could say it speaks of one person, and that person is Christ. Here in Hebrews chapter 8, let me just begin reading uh, in verse 4. For if he were, speaking of Christ, on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Now, I can't do, we're not going to teach on this concept that, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, uh, but, but what he's talking about is Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's our ultimate high priest. We don't have to bring sacrifices repeatedly to atone for sin because Jesus, once and for all, has made an offering for sin. And, and, and so this is what he's talking about, trying to get these Hebrews these believers, these Jewish believers to understand that they don't need to keep going back to Jerusalem at feast time and offering sacrifices. They can't add anything to what Jesus has already done. In fact, if that's where your faith is, you really don't have any faith and there is no repentance for your sin and there is no sacrifice for your sin because you're offering an animal that is totally and completely meaningless when Jesus Christ has done the ultimate, made the ultimate sacrifice, and there is no more atonement for sin other than by the blood of Jesus. Verse 5, who serve the copy and the shadow. These earthly priests serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, God says, here is the blueprint for what I'm going to have you build and establish. But we need to understand that that pattern was not just a set of construction plans to make sure the tabernacle was structurally sound and built just right. It was more than that because the tabernacle, as did everything in it and all of the, the sacrifices that were brought and all of the worship that took place inside of there and, and involved with that tabernacle, everything 
was according to the pattern. It spoke of what God was establishing, what he had eternally established in Christ Jesus. And so, who is the heavenly pattern? Christ is the heavenly pattern. And so, when God told Moses, see that you make everything according to the pattern, we understand that that what God was establishing was, again, a shadow, a picture, a type of. God was painting a picture in everything that he did. He was giving us a picture of Christ. He was preparing his people so that when Christ came, they would know that this was not the shadow any longer, but the substance. And this is what Paul says to the Colossians. The reason he says, let no one judge you in food or drink or in festivals or Sabbaths or moons or any such thing, because these things are the, the shadow, but the substance is of Christ, he says. He says, those were only things that spoke of Christ. Christ has come, so we're not looking to the shadow anymore. We're now involved in relationship with the substance. Ephesians 2, um, look at Ephesians 2, verse 20. So Christ is the pattern in reality God is working toward in his eternal purpose. And it is Christ, the Son, that is the pattern of the house. So in Ephesians 2.20, Paul writes this, speaking of the church or speaking of the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone established the pattern that the stones would be laid. If the cornerstone was not right, the rest of the building wouldn't be right. And so we see that every aspect of this building that, that God is establishing, that God is building from the foundation to the cornerstone to the capstone, I mean, it all speaks of one person. It speaks of Christ. So Christ himself being the chief cornerstone whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. First Peter 2, 4, and 5, Peter says, as coming to a living stone, Christ is the living stone, and we as lively stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy habitation of God in the Spirit. Revelation 21, 22, in John's vision, in the new heaven and the new earth, he says that the, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. And I saw no temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were the temple. And so we see that at the very end of the canon of Scripture, God shows us the eternal pattern. He says that tabernacle, that tent of meeting, that temple of Solomon's, the first temple, that second temple that Jesus walked in and out of when he walked on this earth. Those things were types and shadows, but the ultimate, the, the eternal pattern, the thing that God is working toward, we see it in the very end of the scripture. And I saw no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb 
or its temple. Why? Because Jesus has always been the eternal pattern. It all speaks of, it all is pointing to Him. So what does the Scripture call us? The Scripture says we are, Peter says, lively stones being built up into this house. We are a temple. We are the temple of God, Paul says. And so the Scripture uses this language that likens us to the temple, to the house, the place where the presence of God dwelt, you know, behind the the second veil in the the Holy of Holies. You go into the temple and there's a, there's a veil they go through. Then there's another veil they go through into the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the cherubim are sitting there on the mercy seat and they have their eyes covered and their wings outstretched. And, and there in between the wings, that's where the presence of the Lord would dwell. And the high priest would go in once a year at the Day of Atonement and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Who is our Ark? Who is our seat of mercy? Christ is. It spoke of him. And where does Christ dwell now? Not in a temple made by the hands of man behind a a linen veil, but he dwells in a temple not made by the hands of man, made by God himself, resurrected, raised up by God himself in Christ. And we are being built up. So we see this house pattern, this house symbolism and this analogy that scripture uses throughout the new testament here and we know that that christ is he is the house we are the house but we are the body right so we are the house but we're the house because christ is the house we're the temple of the holy spirit because as john says in revelation 21 22 the lamb and the lord god almighty are the temple and so why because we are remember We're not separated from him. We're not waiting for God to catch us when we fall. We have been joined as one to him in his life. So my hand is a part of me because it's been joined to me. It's It's part of my life. My life is, this is who we are in Christ. And this is the eternal pattern. This is what the writers of scripture are talking about. So last week we talked about change and change on a macro level and change on a micro level and the forces that are all around us that are, whether we want to or not, whether we like it or not, there are things that are bringing change into our life. Sorry about that. They're bringing change into our life. The economy and the problems in the economy are bringing change into people's lives. You say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with God. No, it has everything to do with God. God's not removed from anything that's happening in this world. God is, is intimately involved in everything that's happening in this world. And we can look at those things and we can uh, think about those things apart from God or we can understand that God is the one who is leading and guiding the course of history. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he will turn the heart of the king just as he turns the course of the rivers. Say, boy, God must have fallen asleep because Barack Obama's president. No, God didn't fall asleep. You might love what Barack Obama does. You might hate what Barack Obama does. But Barack Obama did not come to live in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue because God had a, a, a lapse in November of 2008. No. 
He's there because God has a purpose for him being there. Now, I don't know what it is, but I believe the Scripture. I believe the Scripture. And it may be, it may be that God is allowing the bitter dealings to take place in a nation to affect a greater, more eternal transformation in the hearts of the people of a nation. I don't know. But you can lament what's happening in the natural or you can put your faith and your trust in an eternal God. And the scripture says, put your faith and trust in an eternal God. So when we speak of change, the most important aspect of change is not about the external, but it's about the internal. The internal change, this, this is what the Bible calls transformation. Transformation doesn't happen from the outside. It happens from the inside. Transformation doesn't begin out here. Transformation begins in here, on the inside. And so this internal transformation or this internal change, this is the conforming to Christ that God works in us by the power of His Spirit. This is what the Scripture speaks of, uh, that, that we're being brought into conformity to Christ. And that work is done first and most importantly as an internal work. The Spirit of God is internally working in our hearts. Believer, Christian, the Spirit of God is internally working in your heart, affecting transformation. Not so that that transformation will remain inside, but so that transformation will be manifest outside, externally. And so that internal transformation will ultimately manifest externally. This is the work of God. Just like the, the little flower on your peach tree turned into a peach. How? That's the work of God. That's what God created it to do. When you are created in Christ Jesus, you are created for good works, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. And those works, you're going to walk in those works, and those works are going to manifest just like the peach manifest on the peach tree. It's going to be the work of the Spirit in you that's going to do that. But it's going to be the work of the Spirit to a yielded and surrendered life. Are we always yielded and surrendered to God? No, we're not. But God has a way, doesn't He? And this is what I'm talking about. God using the forces of change outside and inside to bring us to a place and all the time, he's molding and shaping and conforming us into a glorious image. The image of his son. This is the eternal pattern. He's manifesting this life in us according to the eternal pattern, which is Christ Jesus, the glorious son. This is what Paul says when he speaks to the Colossians and he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Even in this jar of clay, there is a treasure, a glorious treasure. The treasure is not the jar. The treasure is Christ, the life that's in you, which is Christ.
So Hebrews 3, 6 speaks of Christ being a son over his own house, whose house we are. We are his house. So the son and the pattern of the house, the house, the pattern of the house is the son. If we're the house, we are being conformed to the pattern who is the son. That means that God by his spirit is working in us, around us, through us to bring us to the image of the son. Now I'm telling you what, church, that's good news. This is why the gospel is called gospel. Do you know God does not have to do that? God in His grace has chosen to do that. He had, didn't have to send Christ. Listen, the Father didn't have to send the Son, and the Son didn't have to come. God didn't have to make that His eternal plan. He did that. And do you realize the benefit we reap because that was the plan of grace. God didn't just leave us in our sin and in our death. And so as a believer, I want you to have hope today. Hope because of the work of the Spirit of God on the inside of you. Hope because of what God has promised in His Word. And they're not empty promises. They're real promises with real substance. How do we know? Because we came to the table today and we celebrated a real body that was really broken on a cross. We are celebrated real blood that was spilt for real forgiveness. We're talking about a spirit, not some force, some invisible force that's floating around in the heavenlies, but a person of the Godhead who now lives on the inside of us, bringing to manifestation and fruition the very life of Christ that we've been brought into by His grace. Go to Romans 8, 29. Now remember, last week I made this statement. I said, you know, we're not being conformed to Jesus of Nazareth. We're not being conformed to the Jesus that walked the earth. We're being conformed to the Son of glory. We're being conformed to the resurrected Lord, the Son who has now entered into the glory. This is why what would Jesus do is the wrong question. We're not just people here imitating Jesus. You know, this is what the Hindus do. The Hindus have their gurus, and they imitate the life of their guru, and they set him up on a pedestal, and they look at the image of that guru, and they pray to it, and they worship it, and they try to make their life look just like that guru. And some of them are quite successful. But it doesn't save them. We can imitate moral behavior all day long. Jesus can just become a guru to us by another name if we don't understand what truly has transpired here. Now what Jesus did when he saved us was not just give us a life that walked this earth to imitate. No, he raised us up in his eternal life and he imparted that life to us. He imparted his righteousness to us. We have something much greater than just the power to imitate. He has imparted his very life to us. And so Paul here in Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the image of His Son. What is your destiny as a believer? Your destiny is to be conformed to the image of the Son. And you don't do that through the power of imitation. That is accomplished by the power of the Holy Ghost that lives on the inside of you. Whom He predestined, He to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, Moreover, when He predestined these, He also, uh, whom He predestined, He called, whom He called, He also justified, whom He justified, these He also glorified. You realize that, that this, is, this is what God is working toward. When, when I say that the eternal pattern is Christ... What God is doing through everything in and around our life, He is bringing us to this place of being conformed to the Son. Not a great man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, but the eternal Son of glory who has now re-entered that glory and He is the eternal pattern. And God, in His grace, by the power of His Spirit, is causing us to come into conformity, not of a good man who walked the earth, but the Lord of glory who now sits above everything and all things have been placed under His feet. And God is bringing us to this place. And He is bringing us to this place. And, and while He is doing this, here's what Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. That it pleased God that the church would be a witness to powers and principalities of what? Of the manifold wisdom of God. That the whole time God is doing this, dealing and working in our lives, conforming us to the glorious Son of God, the very existence, our very existence here in this earth is giving witness and testimony of the wisdom of God, Paul says. You don't realize how significant your life is. You think just because you live in a small town and you've never written a, uh, uh, a great novel or you've never done anything to cause your name to be up in lights or you say, you know, when I leave this earth, will anyone know that I was here? I'm going to tell you what, stop thinking like that. Because I'm telling you right now, your life is significant because God is using your life right now to give witness and testimony of His eternal plan. It's not about whether anyone's going to remember us. It's about whether they will know Christ. It's not about whether we get any glory. It is about His glory. We're not being brought into our glory. We are being brought into His glory. And He is the glorious one who will receive all the glory. And if we're glory hogs trying to get some of that glory, well, God has a way of dealing with that, with that too, doesn't he? I'm telling you, there's not going to be anything left in us that's not going to be conformed to the Son. And the problem is, we think that this just happens automatically. We just want someone to anoint us. We just want someone to zap us and pray. Just, just speak the magic words and let it be done. Well, it don't happen like that, honey. This is a lifelong process because God sees things in you that you don't even know are there. God knows things about you that you can't even know about yourself. And God's bringing you into something that you can't even imagine with your finite mind. 
But God knows because it's, it's his eternal plan. It's his eternal purpose. And in spite of us, in spite of our resistance, God will persist and God's will shall be done. And he will cause this temple, this house to be established. And it will be according to the pattern and it will be glorious. Oh, it will be glorious. And it's not going to be done in secret. It's not going to be done in a corner. I'm telling you what, all creation will see it. All creation will witness it. All creation will know it. This is what God is doing. This is why as believers, we should be the most excited people on the face of the earth. In all of creation, there should be no one with more excitement than what we have. We have more to be excited about, more to look forward to. Not, not because I'm going to be rich or because I'm going to get, get rid of that stinking thinking. This is not about temporary, temporary things, earthly things. This is about eternal things. If God makes you rich on this earth, praise God for it. He's got a reason for it and it's for His glory, not for your comfort and convenience. Though you may be comfortable and convenient in it. It's not for that. It's for His glory. If he allows you to go through trials and tribulations, it's not because he doesn't love you or he's mad at you or he's punishing you. I'm telling you what, he is working something out and it's for his glory. So our life and our life events here and now during our time of visitation in this world are all part of God's eternal purpose of conforming us to the image of his son. With the ultimate purpose for us and for all things, do you realize that? All things, all things, all things ultimately will bring glory and honor to the Lord. Now you and I can't figure out how all that's going to happen, but I'm going to promise you right now because this is what the Bible promises us. And either we're going to believe the Scripture or we're not going to believe the Scripture. But the Scripture says that God will work all things together for good to those who love Him and are called in accordance to His purpose. But... Even greater than that, God will work all things together and all things will testify and declare of his glory. I'm telling you what, Satan in the fiery pit for all eternity will testify and bring glory and honor to God. It, it will. Now, just because you and I can't figure out how all that works together, well, well we're not God. And that's why Isaiah said his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We're not, we're, we're not God. We're not meant to understand all that. He may let us and he may not let us, but we are meant to trust him. And we are to know that it is by his grace that he has brought us into this salvation that is so great and given us promises that are so precious through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul reveals this truth, this truth of the eternal glory that's revealed. Where is the, where is the eternal glory revealed? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says it's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. That the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And so for us to be glorified is to be fully conformed to Jesus Christ, the Son. When Paul says in Romans 8, 29 and 30, that, that, that those that he knew that are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, ultimately we will be glorified with what? With the glory of the Son, because the Son is the glory. And right there in those two verses, we see that Paul gives us the beginning and the end. We were foreknown and predestined to be conformed. And ultimately, in eternity, 
we shall be glorified. And, and how does that all happen? Well, this is our life in between. This is the process that God is bringing us. He says, you know what? You will be conformed to my Son. And that work of conforming us to the Son with the ultimate end that we will be glorified in the Son in our very life in the Son will glorify God Himself. Isn't that amazing? He allows us to experience His glory and that experience is going to glorify Him. And this is the journey that we're on right now. This is our life. And even in the valley of the shadow of death, when we walk through the dark times of life, I'm telling you what, God is taking us to a place that He has already prepared for us. This is what the 23rd Psalm says. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because God has prepared a table for me. Has prepared. He's not going to prepare it when I get there. He has prepared it all ready. So don't look at the darkness. Get your eyes on the shepherd and know that he has something prepared already. This is the hope and the promise that we have in Christ and what he has prepared for us is his glory. Hallelujah. So Paul reveals this. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. He expounds on this. He gives us another Picture of how God is doing this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, till we all come together. So the context here, when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts. What we commonly call the fivefold ministry gifts. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. For what, what, what is the ultimate end? What, what was the purpose of this? Here's what Paul says. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or a complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, or that we should no longer be immature, tossed to and fro. If we should no longer be immature, what should we be? We should be mature. There's a time when we're all immature, right? But there is a path, a growth, a pattern of growth to maturity. And that, what does that maturity look like? It looks like Christ. This is what Paul is saying. But speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. This is the pattern. This is the eternal pattern. God saved us by grace through faith. And now, through the power of His Spirit, He is bringing us to what? To a fullness. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says, what you're going to look like, what your destiny is, what God is doing in you, you look and you see Jesus Christ in His full measure, in His fullness, in His ultimate maturity, in His ultimate glory. Paul says, this is what the Spirit of God is bringing you into. This is the life we've been brought into. This is, now we don't become Jesus. We don't become God. But listen, I'm a grown man. I've reached my maturity. My hand is part of me. 
My hand is a member of my body, part of a mature body. So my hand doesn't look the same as little Ephraim's hand. But, but there was a time when my hand looked just like Ephraim's hand, right? But God didn't birth me so that my hand could stay little like that. God birthed me with the intent that I would grow into a fully mature man. God didn't birth the church so that it would stay in its immaturity. God birthed the church to bring it into a fully mature church, a fully mature body that would glorify its head. Why? Because the head is glorious and the body is being brought into conformity of what? Of that eternal pattern which is the glorious Son. So the work of God's Spirit in the church is to bring God's people to fullness, full conformity to the glorious Son. And this work of the Spirit that is taking place, do you realize this is the work taking place in us? This work that's taking place in this work, listen, we do not lack the substance. In other words, I don't need more of Jesus. I either have Him or I don't. God did not give me part of Jesus when I got saved. Christ is the fullness, and if Christ dwells in me, He dwells in me in fullness, because how can you take away from Christ? Christ can't be divided. You can't take part of, like, tearing a donut in half. Well, I'll just take half. No. So I'm not lacking, as the church, we're not lacking in the substance. We're lacking in the manifestation of the substance. But the substance is there. That little baby who has a hand about that big, guess what? Everything that God needs to make that baby come to fullness and maturity is already there. But God in His supernatural power and grace brings the manifestation. He brings that child to maturity. He brings His church to maturity. How is He going to bring the church to maturity? Remember we said last week, how is God going to change a nation? We all want God to change Washington. No, listen, Washington will never be changed until we are changed. How does God change a nation? He changes it one heart at a time. Ultimately, we can change laws, we can change everything, but he's got to change our heart. How is he going to bring a church to maturity, to fullness of glory? He's going to do it by bringing each one who is a member of that body to fullness and maturity. This is why what you do matters. It really does. Your relationship with God matters. You say, well, but, but you said God was sovereign and he's in control and he's going to do it. So does that mean we just sit back and do nothing and let God do it? Absolutely not. Does the scripture teach that? Paul says, God forbid. That's not what I'm saying. No. Do you realize when I tell my hand to pick up a hammer and hammer a board, a nail into a board, my hand is doing something, isn't it? But it's doing it under the direction of my head. We've been brought into Christ, into His life. And so how does this manifestation come to fullness? Let's talk about the kingdom of God. Luke 17, let's turn there. Jesus gives us a beautiful picture in the Gospels of how this process takes place. Our problem is, is that we, we don't want the process to be the way God says it's going to be. We want it to be the way we want it to be. 
So Luke 17, 20. Jesus is visiting with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are asking him, because they're wanting the kingdom to come, because they want to get rid of the Roman yoke. They want, they want their kingdom, what God has promised them. And so they ask him, verse 20, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So here's a very important principle for us to understand here. What does without observation mean? Does it mean that it's invisible? That it can't be seen? No, that's not what it means. When Jesus says the kingdom of God does not come or it comes without observation, He didn't mean that it was invisible or that it can't be seen. But here's what he meant. He meant that its approach cannot be carefully inspected or observed. Jesus gives examples of this. Let's turn over to Matthew 13. We're going to look at three specific parables that will help us understand what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of heaven comes without observation. Matthew 13, 24 through 30 Actually, take the whole chapter of Matthew, even the parable of the soils, gives us this picture. But Matthew 13, 24 through 30, 24 through 30 this is the parable about the, the guy who, um, the sowing of the wheat and the tares. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but then an enemy came while he slept and sowed tares among the wheat. And to fast forward through this, basically, the reapers came and say, should we try to get the... He said, no, just look, just let it all grow together. Because when it comes to maturity, it'll be very clear what's wheat and what's tear. What are tares? He said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, there's lots of things in this parable, but I want you to... I'm focusing on how, how does a field grow when you plant it? Or Jesus says this in the next parable... In verse 31, another parable he put forth to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So he says, the kingdom comes like the planting of a field. It's fully known when it is fully mature. Or he says, the kingdom comes like a mustard seed. Very small, the smallest of things... But yet, in its maturity, it becomes something that is not only fruitful, but, but brings great blessing. And so it comes like a mustard seed, begins small and seemingly insignificant, but grows to fruitfulness and blessedness in its maturity. Who would have ever believed that some unknown man from Galilee who never wrote a book... Do you realize that Jesus never... Jesus did not write Scripture... In his earthly, do you realize Jesus never wrote a book? Jesus didn't write these Gospels. Men wrote these Gospels under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that as far as we know, Jesus never wrote a book? Yet, his story is the best-selling story in the history of the world. If anybody could have written a bestseller, I'm telling you what, Jesus Christ could have. And here, even Jesus dying on the cross is such a picture of the kingdom of God. Here is this insignificant, no-name man, seemingly to everybody around him, who's mocked in his death, 
if you're the king, why don't you bring the kingdom? You have so much power. You raised everybody else. You did all this. Why don't you save yourself? They mocked him in his death, thinking that he would die and disappear into obscurity. Jesus is like that smallest of seeds that was planted in the ground. And look, from a hill outside of Jerusalem, right now all over the world, on this day, billions of people are speaking and preaching and teaching about Him. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman puts into a lump of dough and the leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus says the kingdom doesn't come with observation. You Pharisees want to set up camp and you want to you want to see and you want to inspect and you want to observe everything that happens and judge whether it's the kingdom or not. He said that's not how the kingdom comes. So have you ever planted a field or maybe not a field if you're not a farmer, but have you ever planted a garden? Who's ever planted a garden, whether by seed or by plants? Now if you planted your garden, you put that seed in the ground and you took your chair out there and you set, would you see that garden grow? Well, now, if you sit there long enough, but are you going to sit there that long? No, you won't. You'll sit there for, you might sit there for 24 hours and say, this garden isn't growing. I don't see anything happening here. When a child is born, when Ephraim was born, and he was 10 pounds and 2 ounces and so many inches long, if we'd have set him on the table there and sat down and watched him and said, I'm going to watch this baby grow. We don't do that, do we? Because he doesn't grow with observation. He doesn't sit there and grow and say, oh, there he goes. Oh, he just sprouted a finger. Oh, wow, look, his foot just grew two sizes. Doesn't happen that way, does it? Jesus said, that's not how the kingdom comes, you Pharisees. It doesn't come with observation. It's like a farmer planting his field. When it comes to maturity, you're going to know what it is. It's like the smallest of seeds that planted in the ground that seems so insignificant. But when it comes to maturity, it's going to bring fruitfulness and blessedness. It's like that leaven that is put in the lump of dough that eventually will leaven the whole lump. There was a seed planted in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, seemingly insignificant. And that seed has come out of the ground. Do you see that seed growing and coming to maturity all over the world now? Do you see it? Can you see it? Are you still sitting in your chair waiting to see your field grow? You're not ever going to see it that way. This is how the kingdom comes to manifestation. This is how we are being transformed. You say, well, I, I'm just so ready for, you know, why can't I just get it? Why can't this just be, why can't I be done with this? I'm just ready for God to... There you are. You're sitting in your garden again trying to watch your corn grow. And you're frustrated because it's not growing fast enough for you. Honey, you can sit there all day long. You're not going to make the corn grow faster. Because you don't make the corn grow. 
You might plant, you might water, but I tell you what, He's the one that's going to bring the increase. When you read your Bible, when you spend time in prayer, you're planting, you're watering, but you don't bring the increase. God determines. Beans mature faster than, than some things do. You ever planted little bean, beans? I mean, they sprout right up. You plant an oak tree, beans grow a lot faster than oak trees do. I got oak trees sitting in two buckets outside of my garage. And it just looks like they're not growing at all. But I know for a fact that those oak trees, when they were planted in those buckets, they were nothing but acorns. They have a bunch of other oak trees that I planted in my yard. And some of them, you couldn't even get them inside this building. But they weren't that big when I planted them. And if I stood out there every day just watching that oak tree grow, I would be so frustrated right now. But you know what? As I look... In the process of time, I realize, you know what? There is some growth that has taken place. And when I planted those trees in the ground, you know what? I planted them in faith, trusting that God would cause them to grow because that's what trees are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to grow. Well, when Christ was planted in your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, He was planted in your heart. He was planted in your good soil with the intent that he would bring a growth, a fruitfulness. Now listen, God's not growing. God doesn't grow and God doesn't evolve. Jesus said the seed is the word. Well, he's the living word, but what is growing? In that seed that was planted in in our hearts, was there everything in that seed to make a full-grown, mature expression of what that seed is? Yes. Yes. So when Christ was implanted in our hearts, I'm telling you what, you're not lacking in any substance. You're only lacking in the manifestation. I'm not out there pasting leaves and limbs onto my oak trees trying to get them to be bigger. No, everything that's inside that oak tree, that growth is taking place and God is bringing the increase in the manifestation. And one day it will come to full glory and full maturity. God says this is what? The kingdom is. This is who you are. You are the church. The church isn't this building. The church isn't a denomination, an institution. You, child of God, you are the church. And God says, I have put everything in you. I've put the substance in you who is Christ. Don't chase shadows any longer. You have now received the substance who is Christ. And I had put that substance in you and I had put my spirit in you and that spirit of God inside of you is bringing you into maturity. You are growing up into Him in all things. And you will. How do I know? Because this is what the Bible promises. If you are in Christ right now, the promise to you is that you will come to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ who is the head. How will you do that? You will do that because the Spirit of God will cause that to happen. How do you know that, Pastor Jeff? How do you know God's not going to get frustrated with me and give up on me? Because Philippians 1.6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. When God planted the seed of His Word, listen, when Christ was implanted on in your good heart, 
that he made good, he says it will produce a crop. Will it produce the same? No. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Do all trees grow to the same height? No, but all trees reach a maturity. Good trees do. Not diseased trees, not corrupt trees, but good trees that come from good root, planted in good soil, will come to maturity. And this is what God has promised to us, His people. It is the Spirit of God in us that is working to bring about a manifestation of the indwelling life of the Son. And with the manifestation of the Son's life, with that manifestation is the kingdom. You can't have the Son and not have the kingdom. That's why Jesus said the kingdom hasn't come yet. Oh, the kingdom came. The kingdom's within you. Jesus, when he healed the blind, he said the kingdom of God is right here among you. It's here. Why? Because I'm here. And I'm the king of the kingdom. Now, if Christ is in me, as Christ's life is manifest through us, guess what? There is a greater manifestation of his kingdom. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I'll leave you with this. You could also read Romans chapter 5, verse 3. But I chose James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces... Listen, the testing of your faith produces... Produces patience. But let... Patience have its perfect work. Let patience have its complete work. See, that's our, that's our trouble. We get impatient, and we want the work to be done on our time, in our schedule. I want my garden to grow now. I don't want to wait 30 days. Look at this seed pack. It says, in 60 days. I don't want to wait 60 days. I want it right now. Well, go to H-E-B. You can get it right now at H-E-B. But, but, but even that which you bought at H-E-B, guess what? Somebody had to wait 60 days. Somewhere, someone had to wait. And see, we think life's like going to H-E-B or going to Walmart. We should be able to get it now on demand when we want it. And God says that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom doesn't come with observation. It's not like coming home from the grocery store with a bunch of groceries in hand. God says, no, that's not how the kingdom works. It's like a field that's planted. It's like leaven in a lump. It's like the smallest seed that turns into something that's unimaginable. James says, let patience have its perfect, its complete work that you may be perfect or complete, lacking nothing. How are we going to become perfect and complete? Because by the work of the Spirit of God, we are being brought to maturity, brought to fullness According to whose measure and stature? According to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Let God do His work. And even when God has to work in the bitter times, in the dark times, in the hard times, trust God to do His work. When the world is right and the sun is shining down on you just the way you want it to and everything seems like it couldn't be any better, ah, 
Don't forget, God is still doing his work. And the only reason the sun is shining at the right angle and the day is everything you dreamed it could be is because God in his grace has allowed that to be your case and point in time. But no, to get to the place that God has prepared us for and to get to the place where God has already prepared for us a table, which in that psalm is the mountaintop, You'll never make it to the top of a mountain without going through the valley. Don't despise your valleys. Embrace God in the valley and trust him that he is working for you, as Paul says, a more eternal weight of glory. Amen. Let's all stand. This is the sun and the eternal pattern. This is the pattern God has ordained eternally, and this is the pattern that you are being molded and shaped and brought into, ultimately for the glory of the Lord God Almighty. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have, by the power of your Spirit, performed and are performing this work, it's an ongoing work that you are doing in your people, in your church. Not just here at Christ Fellowship, but in every believer across the face of this globe. And Lord, we thank you that it is by your grace that you have made us a part of this. That you have caused us to become a part of this glorious body of Christ. This glorious work, this glorious temple, this glorious house that is being built, not by the hands of man, but by the power of God. And Lord, we thank you that the pattern of the house is not something man designed. It's not something of our vain imaginations, of our earthbound uh, concepts. But Lord, the pattern of the house is an eternal pattern. Eternal in the heavens it is Christ. And what you have promised for your children, what you have promised for those who are Christ, that you will conform us to the image of the Son. And Lord, you do that not, not just for our good, not, not for any other reason really, God, except for your glory. But in your glory, we experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. We experience your goodness. We experience, Lord, those things that we can't even express in human terms, with human words. But they are true. They are the great and precious promises that you have given to us and made real to us in Christ Jesus. And you have given us your Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a seal that, Lord, this is not just something that you said. This is something you have done. And you have guaranteed it by the finished work of Christ. We thank you, Lord. I pray, Father, for each one of us here today that you would open our hearts and our minds to be able to see and know in a greater way this salvation that you have given to us that is eternal, that is unsearchable and without end. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst to search out the unsearchable to seek to know the unknowable and to embrace that which cannot be embraced in human terms but can only be embraced by the power of your Spirit. We thank you for that Spirit that lives and abides in us. In Jesus' name.
All God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come tonight. We're uh, almost to the end of Not I But Christ. We've got about three more weeks to go. If you're here and uh, you would like prayer, come and we will pray.